Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Buskell. He is a visiting assistant professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Public Policy. His work analyzes issues where human cognition, culture, politics and biology intersect. His current project analyzes the ontological and epistemic assumptions underwriting cross-cultural comparison and their implications for research and, and policy design. He is one of the co-organizers of the project Culture at the Macro Scale, Boundaries, Barriers and Endogenous Change. So, Dr. Buskell, welcome to the show. To the show. It's a huge pleasure to everyone. Yeah, good morning, Ricardo. It's a pleasure to be here for me as well. So, um, of course, I've already talked several times about cultural evolution on the channel, but I'm not completely sure if I ever asked anyone what uh, cultural evolution really is. So, what is it? It's, well, it's an expansive question that you've just asked. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to ask about it. We might think of cultural evolution as this stream of intellectual thought, something that has um, continued for at least the last 150 years with people thinking about how one can apply broadly evolutionary ideas to sociocultural phenomena. So that's one way of answering this question. It's a, it's a broad area of thought where people have tried to apply these tools from evolutionary thinking as they've developed to sociocultural phenomena. I think when people talk about cultural evolution now, they tend to have a much more circumscribed understanding of, of cultural evolution, which is that um, we're interested in a particularly strong um, analogy between current understandings of evolution, understandings that developed in the you know, mid 20th century, um, and um, not necessarily sociocultural phenomena, as in the ways in which we organize ourselves as people, but the uh, ideas that are carried by those societies or cultures. So we have this broad idea, this sort of stream of intellectual thought, and this much more narrow one, where it's this tight analogy between, um, I'd say something almost like the idea of genes and something like the particulate units of inheritance and in culture, sometimes called memes, sometimes called ideas, sometimes called information. And when we move from one to the other, from this general idea to a much more circumscribed one, we shift quite a bit in terms of the target of our analyses in terms of the underlying ontology of what we take culture to be and the methods which we use to study it. Even though I've just said that there's this sort of general understanding and much more circumscribed one, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity in this circumscribed area. So even though lots of people now work in this, this area of cultural evolution where they develop these analogies between biology or biological evolution and culture, they're not, as you have rightly pointed out, a lot of clear-cut answers to this um, about what is actually evolving, what are the units of inheritance. Um, and some people see this as an area of particular concern, right? We actually need to nail down both what 
the culture is in cultural evolution and what the evolution is in evolution. Whereas some people are much more amenable to this idea that this is just a broad uh, umbrella that encompasses a lot of very fruitful theoretical modeling and empirical approaches. And if we really try and nail down these terms, we're going to end up um, either excluding or um, getting away from this quite irenic, um, fruitful empirical endeavor that seems to be going on right now. Um, so there's no, unfortunately, um, tidy, neat answer to your question. Um, there's just a lot going on in cultural evolution and there has been for a long time. And these kinds of issues, what it is, what we're studying, what it's all about, um, are being continually confronted. And I think is an area of continuing interest in both the philosophical community and in the cultural evolutionary society today. Mm -hmm. But do you think we really need to have a definite answer and an answer that is sort of universally accepted about what uh, things like culture, the units of selection in cultural evolution, and what cultural evolution even itself means for people to make scientific progress within this field, or not necessarily? Well, um, I myself might be a little bit unusual in this regard, but I don't think that that's true. I think what is so fruitful about this empirical approach, this contemporary work going on in cultural evolution, is that it's been facilitated by these, these terms, evolution, culture, that are themselves quite plastic and quite free for interpretation. And that allows for people to pick up on different interesting analogies or different clusters of properties for which they can apply these models and tools from different fields. So just to take an example, in, in so contemporary work in cultural evolution, we have people who work with these phylogenetic models that are trying to reconstruct often um, the history of distinct language groups. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have people who are doing these very techy models based on population genetics and using this to try and understand how we can um, model the movement of traits in a population. And we also have people doing these mixed qualitative quantitative methods, um, trying to understand how ideas and information move through actual populations. And one worry or one concern is if we start trying to nail things down, we're actually going to end up excluding some of these from this broader label of cultural evolution, sort of a political point, but also that we might just end up fracturing what I take to be a pretty useful plasticity in the term, which allows all of these different analyses to, to speak to one another. Um, then at the same time though, we have to realize that because it's so flexible and so plastic, um, these terms do often mean slightly different things in different contexts, and that in and of itself can have both epistemic consequences, and then maybe to foreshadow some of the concerns we might get into later in this interview, can also have policy implications or political implications. Right. So there's both a, a positive and a negative. Right. 
but even with those caveats in mind, uh, how did cultural evolution evolve? And can we, is it possible for us to say when it started? Well, you've had you've had a lot of guests on here who are probably much more qualified than I to speak about this. So Monique Bergerhoff Mulder, you know, Rob Boyd, Kim Sterelny, they've all written and studied their entire lives trying to understand questions and like these and ones nearby. Um, and so again, I, I'll just try and answer it to the best of my ability and say, like the previous question, we can answer this one in a lot of different ways. So if we're interested in capacities underwriting cultural evolution in general, these are probably quite evolutionarily deep, right? So we see capacities for some kind of social learning or attentiveness to information in the environment, you know, extremely deep in the evolutionary tree. So there's lots of interesting work and exciting work on insect social learning, right? Which suggests that some of these capacities are, you know, hundreds of millions of years old. Mm -hmm. But typically, I guess, when people talk about cultural evolution, they're interested in maybe a more stringent set of conditions or maybe a smaller set of capacities that facilitate not just social learning, but something like um, social learning that is sustained in a demarcated group. So Andrew Whiten has a definition that, that articulates culture sort of akin to the way that we talk about cultures and humans. So there needs to be some kind of perpetuation of a tradition or something like that within a circumscribed community. And capacities for something like that are probably much more evolutionarily recent, um, in part because they involve relationships of social affiliation and notions of some sort of kin structured group um, which are a little bit different than the the kinds of communities that we see in the uh in the insect case or other sorts of hymenoptera like cases um, even within this more circumscribed notion dealing with sort of kin groups or some kind of social affiliation lots of people want to distinguish between seemingly qualitatively different forms of cultural evolution. So we want to distinguish cases like birdsong, where we've got some sort of rich, um, seemingly innate structured capacities that nonetheless facilitate changes in vocalization over time, mm -hmm. the birdsong case, from instances where we have maybe arbitrary or conventional behaviors that might emerge um, within a group and be perpetuated for some period of time. And those seem to rely on maybe a different set of capacities. Mm -hmm. um, again, we might also try and think about or be interested in the question about when cultural evolution became something like a dominant force. This is something that people like Joseph Henrik have been writing about. They're interested particularly not not just when we had these abilities for social transmission, but when that those capacities for social transmission ended up um, both constituting an independent inheritance system, but then also seemingly becoming a dominant force shaping um, human activities. So this is what 
Henrik calls the Rubicon that we may have crossed sometime in the last couple million years. Um, so there's lots of ways to answer this question. Um, in general, I think in the field of cultural evolution, people tend to focus, and I think a reasonable place to focus is when we start thinking of cultural transmission as a separate inheritance system, right, as something that starts to mimic or have qualities akin to the kind of inheritance system we see in DNA replication. Mm -hmm. um, and people like Rob Boyd, Pete Richardson, um, have been constructing a really nice model for when we might see this happening, which is some time in the Pleistocene. And their sort of story is climatic fluctuations made it such that we needed to have a really um, powerful set of capacities for picking up on what worked in the near past that led to selection for a suite of capacities for paying attention to um, remembering and expressing the behaviors that have gone on in the recent past. And this starts creating that sort of separate cultural inheritance system. Um, and this is an account that I think is really rich and powerful. And it's one that I think some of your other guests like Kim Storelny have really fleshed out in some of their, their more recent work. Mm -hmm. What are the elements of culture? And how can we approach that question? Yeah, I mean, this is going to, I'm going to start sounding like a broken record, but I think there's a lot of different ways to, to think about it. Um, so one thing I could do is just, you know, enumerate a list. What are the sorts of things that people think of as culture, right? Mm -hmm. So we might think of it as like a catchy tune. We might think of it as technologies. We might think of them as recipes or behaviors, and we can just enumerate lists like that um, to try and answer this question, right? Um, I think that would be a particularly exhausting effort. It would be take a lot of time to enumerate the elements of culture in that way. Um, again, I'm, I'm going to sort of separate out a, a more recent approach from, I think, more general approach. Mm -hmm. So I think um, if we look over the past 150 years, we've seen different kinds of answers to this question, especially when we look in areas like cultural anthropology, who for a long time really had um, a dominant account of what culture is, which mm -hmm. took it largely to be organized um, symbolic information or information that is in, in some ways semantically coded. Um, and had often some sort of symbolic nature. So um, when we look at people like Clifford Geertz, then he's someone who said, you know, the elements of culture are symbols, and this is why we should understand cultures as distinct kinds of texts, right? We're trying to decipher these texts. Right. Um, and there's sort of variations that Geertz is a uh, representative of all anthropology of the last 150 years, but he's a good, I think, um, you know, marker in the landscape. But separate from, from, from Geertz, um, and I think something that's much more prevalent in the work that we see going on in contemporary cultural evolution is to understand culture as information, 
Um, and maybe to, to loop back to that first question, information is a pr particularly expansive notion. Um, and so different camps within contemporary cultural evolution tend to flesh out what they mean by information in different ways to try and get at what they take to be the elements of culture. So um, I think for a long period of time, the dominant approach tried to distinguish culture as information transmitted through particular channels, right? So through channels like um, social learning, even more specifically, something that say Rob Boyd and Pete Richardson would call observational learning, or that Joe Henrik has called more recently just cultural learning, right? So they're trying to say, here's a specific channel and it's just the information that's moving through this channel that we might think of as, as culture. Other people, so if we think about someone like Dan Sperber and the, the cluster of people who work in, in his world of cultural evolution, they tend to understand information just in terms of a sort of bog standard cognitive ontology. They think of culture as mental representations that are part of these long causal chains that they sometimes call uh, cultural cognitive causal chains um, and um, they individuate or distinguish these different cultural traits in terms of these long cultural uh, cognitive causal chains. Um, so again, like these other questions, when we're talking about culture, there's lots of scope for people to come up with different um, ontologies what they take cultures to be and different strategies for trying to distinguish these specific elements of culture. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that uh, there would also be complications, perhaps similar ones when it comes to thinking about how the elements of culture might relate to one another. Correct. Right. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So uh, depending on how we understand the sort of the ontology of culture, how it's individuated, we're going to have lots of different accounts for trying to think about how these little bits of culture relate to one another. So this is facilitated by this, you know, plastic, expansive notion of information. So sometimes um, when people are talking about it, they'll just loosely talk about traits being related to one another, um, typically in terms of just like causal relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're someone like Dan Sperber or some of his students um, who see um, cultural traits as these long causal chains, then anything that causally relates with those causal chains, anything that sort of impinges upon them is in some way influencing or related to the cultural traits in question. Um, and this leads um, Dan Sperber and his students to be quite expansive about what they take culture to be related to, basically everything, right? So when they talk about um, their mechanism for understanding culture and cultural change, they talk about factors of attraction, and those can be both geographical um, or cognitive. Mm -hmm. uh, basically encompasses everything inside the head and everything outside the head. So it's a, it's a pretty expansive account but they think that the benefits of that are that you get to capture all of the causal relations that might change culture. If we have a more circumscribed notion where we think of uh, culture as just 
uh, information transmitted, say, through a specific channel, we're going to have a, a more circumscribed notion of how we think um, or the relationships between traits, right? So it's going to be things that influence that channel or things that influence how things are uh, transmitted or expressed in that channel um, and the biases for what we attend to, right? So um, if we look at, at people like, again, to go back to Rob Boy, Pete Richardson, they tend to look at um, cognitive biases that influence you know, what we pay attention to and those are the kinds of things that um, determine how these elements interrelate. So in my own work, um, I developed a, a sort of model with colleagues in Sweden, so with Magnus Enqvist and uh, Frederik Jansson. Um, and we actually adopted a very, very sparse general and abstract notion um, of elements of culture and their interrelations in part because we're trying to remain in some sense agnostic about some of these lower level questions about ontology. Mm -hmm. um, and we've just construed relationships in terms of things like compatibility and incompatibility, which allowed us to make some very, very simple and very, very general models about uh, cultural traits and their interrelationships. The hope is that these kinds of models might then be applied in more concrete circumstances. Uh, so for instance, I was just reading some recent work by uh, the Aarhus archeologist, Shuman Hussein, who is applying something like this kind of uh, idea of traits and their interrelationships um, in his work on lithic assemblages. So mm -hmm. there's a lot to say in this area. Obviously, if we think of culture as information, information is interrelated with one another in various kinds of relationships, causal, epistemic, and otherwise. Um, and getting a handle on that um, is, is pretty tricky. Um, and you can either do it at this very general way in which my, my colleagues and I have have done some work on, but all of that general work is going to really need to be applied to specific concrete circumstances where hopefully you can enumerate those kinds of uh, interrelationships in more detail. Mm -hmm. So tell us now what a systems approach to cultural evolution is and uh, to what domains of uh, questions that are explored in, within the field of cultural evolution it applies to? Sure, yeah, so this picks up on, I guess, it, what we were just speaking on. Um, so a systems approach was, uh, it's a label that I adopted with uh, Magnus and Frederick to, I think, um, try and bring cultural evolution into conversation with resources and ideas from systems biology and evolutionary developmental biology. And what those kinds of approaches emphasize are the distinct um, entities um, in those fields and their interrelationships. So particularly when we look at something like EvoDevo, evolutionary developmental biology, what we're talking about there are things like gene regulatory networks, where we have these different genes interacting um, over, over timescales. Mm -hmm. 
And so the systems approach was an attempt to try and do something like that in the realm of culture, in part because um, Magnus, uh, Frederick, and myself, when we were looking through the various models that were in cultural evolution at the time, um, felt that most models tended to focus on uh, simple systems. That's not a problem. You always have to simplify to make a model. But the particular simplifying assumptions that were prevalent tended to shrink um, the, the scope of the models to simple systems where you had one or two traits, maybe three traits. Mm -hmm. Or if you had uh, any number of traits, that was shrunk to something like a single parameter that tracked how many traits you had in a population. Um, and so we wanted to build models that explicitly represented distinct sort of cultural elements or traits and their interrelationships to try and start and build these kinds of models exploring how doing so, having distinct traits and their interrelationships influences these processes of, of change over time. Um, so in some ways, the systems approach um, isn't a novel one. It's one that we see in evolutionary biology. There's even this field called systems biology. But uh, my co-authors and I thought it was particularly important to try and bring these sets of tools into cultural evolution because we thought so many of the models that we saw today um, were idealizing away what we took to be a really important feature of cultural systems. Um, and in terms of the question about applicability, which you asked, we, I mean, when we look around at all of the phenomena that cultural evolutionists try to articulate, these are all phenomena that take place in, in systems, broadly speaking. Um, places where we have, you know, maybe circumscribed sets of traits, but certainly tons of traits that all influence one another. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to continue to be build models like these in order to, to really apply these kinds of um, the theoretical resources from cultural evolution to uh, real world cases. Mm -hmm. So changing topics, what are cognitive novelties? Hmm. Sure. Um, so cognitive novelties, at least as I understand them, are just like any other novelty. And novelty is sort of a term of art, a technical term from uh, evolutionary biology, which re refers to a qualitatively uh, distinct um, form in some kind of uh, morphospace, right? So we have a qualitatively distinct sort of trait. Um, and some of the novelties that evolutionary biologists typically point to are things like elephant trunks or um, bird feathers, uh, things like that. So these are these um, traits that appear um, in the evolutionary record, which really open up a new space for um, evolutionary exploration. And so cognitive novelties, uh, at least as I, I have been using the term, is exactly like that, right? If, if we can talk about morphological feature, features as these sort of novelties that are qualitatively distinct form function complexes, that's sort of the jargony term, we can do the same thing when we're talking about cognition, right? These are these qualitatively distinct form function complexes that open up sort of new spaces for evolutionary 
exploration. Um, but one of the things that I've, I've been trying to articulate and I think of as being really interesting once we have this notion of uh, cognitive novelty on the table is it allows us to make sense of some of the claims from recent cultural evolutionary researchers um, who are saying that culture itself plays an important role originating and developing these kinds of cognitive novelties. So one of the things I find interesting is not just cognitive novelties, I think those are fascinating in and of themselves, but the possibility of culturally evolved cognitive novelties. Mm. And this is the kind of thing that researchers like Cecilia Hayes have been pushing forward with yeah. their notion of cognitive gadgets. Mm -hmm. So uh, Cecilia argues that a number of cognitive novelties that many people have assumed to be sort of innate, um, biologically evolved, things like imitation, mind reading, maybe even capacities for language, are actually, or at least plausibly, understood as culturally evolved. These are things that may have, through a process of variation and selection, or group selection, if you're uh, following Cecilia's work. These have arisen and diffused through human populations um, such that they're now basically uh, endemic, they're universal. Um, so I, I, I think cognitive novelties are fascinating, but uh, culturally evolved cognitive novelties is where I think a lot of interesting recent action is focused. Mm -hmm. But these culturally evolved cognitive novelties, um, they would not certainly arise all in the same ways, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like any other kind of novelty or any kind of evolutionary trait, they're going to emerge in particular circumstances. Mm -hmm. The culturally evolved ones, I think, might be particularly heterogeneous, um, in part because there's so many different ways in which these kinds of cultural traits can arise. We have all of these different processes of innovation or introducing novel traits um, that create a rich possibility for introducing these kinds of novelties. So in the work that I just mentioned by Cecilia Hayes, she talks mostly about how these kinds of traits like imitation or mind reading might mm -hmm. arise as sort of experiments in, in living, um, creation of sort of novel technological artifacts, but that diffuse through a process of increased fitness, right? So these innovations arise, they lead to some sort of greater evolutionary success, and they diffuse that way. But when she talks about other kinds of traits, things like reading or numeracy, those don't seem to have immediate kinds of fitness consequences and they need to be enriched with a broader story about how those kinds of traits both uh, sorry, arise and spread. And so one of the examples that I really like when I talk about culturally evolved cognitive novelties is this capacity I call, or not that I call, that is called um, uh, mental abacus calculation. So these are, um, or this is a, a sort of capacity whereby students who are trained to use the Sorbonne abacus to calculate all of these mathematical operations can, through enough training, eventually internalize that and use that abacus imaginatively to do these incredible sums 
just using mental arithmetic, right? And so this is an incredibly powerful, compelling, culturally evolved cognitive novelty, right? These individuals can calculate huge sums, do, you know, cubed roots of 10-digit numbers just using their mental capacities because they've trained so much using these, these abaci. But that's something that's arisen quite recently, has to be sustained by long periods of practice. And again, we have to sort of wonder, you know, what are the conditions under which that uh, arose and, and spread? And those kinds of stories are gonna be much more complicated. Um, at least with the story of the mental abacus, the story seems to involve not just the evolution of the technology, changes in the abacus itself, but you know, the evolution of algorithms to use these things effectively, as well as strategies of pedagogy. So things start to really get complicated when we dig into how some of these cognitive novelties arise. Mm -hmm. So the position you come from in cultural evolution, uh, how do you understand cumulative culture? Where is it and how do you think we should approach it? Right. So cumulative culture broadly is this idea that um, just like the DNA replication as, it's, um, as it replicates over time, preserves modifications made to it through mutation, mm -hmm. recombination, in cumulative culture, the idea is that we have a similar kind of um, replicative or high fidelity process that preserves some kinds of modifications to cultural traits over time. That's the sort of bog standard account. Sometimes it's also called the ratchet account. So I know you've had Mike Tomasello on here, who's sort of famous for this ratchet account where we've got this sort of ratchet. So it, cultural traits always move forward. They never slip back. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the sort of standard account. It's a pretty, uh, it's a helpful illustration of the kind of phenomena at stake. But I'll say that uh, cumulative cultural evolution is is an area of real ongoing contestation, and um, and people I think um, are trying to push the boundaries of, about what cumulative cultural evolution really is. So uh, uh, I guess a couple years ago. Um, Alex Masudi and Alex Thornton wrote this paper trying to synthesize all these different approaches and they came up with a distinction between core criteria for cumulative cultural evolution and these sort of extended criteria. And in that core criteria, we had just what we're talking about, that there needs to be some sort of introduction of variation that can be modified traits, be retained over time, that also leads to some kind of improvement mm -hmm. where that is typically understood in terms of fitness. Um, and that this process is iterated over time, that you can have repeat this over and over and over again. Um, so that's what some people have called the gold standard account of cumulative cultural evolution. But it's one that still admits all of these really interesting cases that I think people aren't entirely sure how we should understand them. So um, some recent work has, has tried to push on this notion by saying, well, this account still seems to leave open some very simple accounts of, of cultural change in non-human animals. So there's these uh, really imaginative uh, and interesting experiments where people have released homing pigeons in pairs. And over time, when you release these homing pigeons in pairs and replace experienced pigeons with naive pigeons, you end up creating 
uh, a little micro society that improves over time. So these pigeon pairs eventually um, get a very direct route to their target destination. And so some people have said, look, this satisfies all these conditions for cumulative cultural evolution, right? Iterated mm -hmm. process, um, improvement over time that involves the retention of modifications made. And I think other people find that very unsatisfying because that doesn't seem to be what we really mean when we talk about cumulative cultural evolution. We want to explain how is it that we got from, you know, stone tools to iPhones or something like that, which seems to be a much more straightforward cumulative cultural process. Um, so now I think there's uh, increasing efforts to try and split up this cumulative culture concept into different kinds of um, maybe subtypes or maybe to try and defend certain kinds of cumulative cultural evolution as distinctively human, whereas other kinds of cumulative cultural evolution are maybe just sort of mere or apparent kinds of, of cumulative culture. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I, I was going to ask you, is cumulative culture uniquely human? Yeah, I mean, maybe. So I guess just to continue that, that last train of thought, um, that seems to be part of what's at stake in this debate. So some people have been arguing for, let's say, a couple decades that cumulative culture is distinctively human. And of course, like all sorts of traits that are claimed to be distinctively human, the more we look around um, particularly the animal kingdom, we tend to find precisely those kinds of traits that we think of as being distinctively human. Um, and that seems to be what's going on now, is that researchers are, can, are putting forward all of these interesting cases, suggesting that um, if we want to retain this idea that human cumulative culture is distinctive to us, it's going to require uh, us actually changing the definition of cumulative culture. So, for instance, um, in addition to this work on homing pigeons, there's huge amounts of work on cetacean, that is whale songs, whale culture, um, dolphin culture, um, and a huge body of work on primate culture. Um, so particularly in, in chimpanzees, but then also in orangs, and then moving beyond primates to monkeys, increasingly on on monkeys as well. And so all of these um, non-human animals seem to display, at least in, in, a, in an attenuated way, these kinds of capacities for um, introducing innovations, modifying them, and iterating that over time. Mm -hmm. even, even though humans do that much better, they still have these kinds of, of central capacities. So um, what we're seeing right now, I think, are people trying to reconcile um, these sorts of uh, conditions or these sorts of the gold standard accounts, say, from Masudi and Thornton, with these new cases. And some people are saying, yes, cumulative culture is something we find across the animal kingdom, whereas other people want to say, no, there is something quite qualitatively distinct about uh, human culture, with one recent account from... Uh, Maxime directs, who I think you've also had on here, um, saying, um, look, what's unique about human cumulative cultural capacities is that we can introduce new kinds of um, affordances, new kinds of ways with interacting with the world and recombine them in different ways. And that seems to be pretty unique to humans. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I would like to ask you about something that I read about in your work, uh, four types of cultural accumulation, uh, adaptiveness, complexity, efficiency, and disparity. So could you explain each of those? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll just say some of the motivation for that is precisely following on from this, this last idea, which is that this notion of cumulative cultural evolution seems to lump together a bunch of different ideas, right? And the more that we dig into it, the more we might want to split that concept of those ideas apart. So to refer back to that idea or those sets of criteria from Masudi and Thornton, one of those criteria was this idea that cumulative culture constantly needs to improve, right? Mm -hmm. There needs to be this sort of notion or standard of improvement. Um, and when we look at the broad literature on cumulative cultural evolution, we see that people have actually construed that, operationalized that term in a lot of different ways. And so one of the things that I tried to do in this, in the, the body of work that you're talking about is try to separate out these different notions of both uh, of improvement, basically. And so um, adaptiveness is one of them. And so adaptiveness, um, as we know from evolutionary biology, is some sort of notion that's related to form function fittedness. So how we get something that seems to match the particular circumstances at play. Um, and I mean, it's, it's sort of a fraught question within cultural evolution. This is a little bit of a sidebar as to whether that, that should be understood in terms of biological fitness or in some sort of notion of cultural fitness, but I'll put that to the side for now. Um, maybe as a subtype of adaptiveness, we might also think of efficacy. So this is another one of those notions um, where efficacy is something like increased economy or um, decreased cost or something like that. So when we create a tool that doesn't really do anything different, it just does it more effectively, um, then that seems to be a, you know, a distinct set of criteria that people were using. And then um, distinct from those, those sorts of notions of uh, adaptiveness or efficacy is uh, this other notion that is frequently brought in when we're talking about culture, which is complexity. Right? How do we understand um, this sort of interesting trend that we see when we look at human culture, where we have gone from rocks to iPhones, right? And so um, separating that out um, is really important because complex traits aren't always adaptive. Sometimes simple traits are really adaptive, and especially when we think about efficacy, sometimes streamlining, getting rid of extraneous bits of, of equipment are actually um, maybe the most adaptive thing. So when we actually start separating out these different elements, we start to see that they don't quite line up in the way that maybe simple narratives about the increase of adaptiveness and complexity that we see in humans might lead us to believe. Mm -hmm. And then this last notion, um, this notion of disparity was to get at this idea, one that I think is really important and I think um, the observation of this I, I really owe to work by Olivier Moran, which is that it's important not just to focus on particular traits or traditions and their increase in adaptiveness or complexity, but the fact that for humans and increasingly as we're learning for primates as well, 
we have capacities to, to learn multiple distinct traits or traditions. And this disparate amount of traits is really interesting and important because, especially when we look at human evolutionary history, when we start having all of these different cultural traits that we need to start learning and keep track of, this creates uh, selection pressures for cultural capacities, maybe ways of teaching and so on. Um, and again, when I, I found that when I looked at the literature, this notion wasn't really clearly separated out, um, but that it seemed really important because of its role in human cognitive and human social evolution. Mm -hmm. So there are examples that we take as paradigmatic of cumulative culture, like, for example, complex hominin technologies. But might there be any issues with it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think maybe just, again, to continue this, this train of thought, um, one of the things I was suggesting in your response to that second question was we've taken for a long time things like iPhones, satellites, or maybe things not even quite so sophisticated, but just like the, the toolkits of forager populations. Mm -hmm. And we tend to take these things as examples or paradigms of what we take cumulative cultural evolution to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that creates these expectations, as I've said, that there might be some sort of increase or relationship between adaptiveness and complexity. And I'm sure that there is in many cases, but when we're trying to understand the capacities for cumulative cultural evolution, just in general, and trying to understand the evolution and the evolutionary importance of those capacities. When we focus on those paradigmatic cases, I think we lose um, a, a sort of better grip on those capacities and their evolutionary history. So when we are trying to understand them, we really need to look at what uh, I've called in, in work with my collaborator, Claudio Tenni, um, marginal cumulative culture. So these kinds of cases of cumulative culture that we see in non-human animals um, and trying to understand, you know, just first, whether these are instances of cumulative culture, that's something that Claudio himself has, has spent a lot of time um, investigating, but to the extent that they are, you know, what kinds of capacities are involved um, and how do these plausibly uh, relate with other capacities to help explain the evolution of um, the really impressive kinds of cumulative cultural evolution that we see in humans. Mm -hmm. Moving on to another topic now, uh, what is a cultural group? Uh, <laughs> what is a cultural group? I mean, I, this, is, this is returning to my kind of response to these first questions, which is, I mean, it really depends who you're talking to. Um, for a long period of time, cultural groups were distinguished in terms of either distinct language abilities, distinct sort of languages, or distinct ethnicities, right? We, when we look at the great canon of anthropological writings, this is, I mean, ethnic um, individuation is basically the name of the game. Mm -hmm. um, over time, of course, we've realized that both ethnicity and language aren't always a reliable indicator of cultural groups, and that especially if cultural groups 
um, are defined in terms of information or information pools, uh, to quote the cognitive anthropologist Roy Dundrod, then those can be any kind of group, so long as there's a reasonable way of distinguishing or demarcating those kinds of informational pools. Um, one of the things that is tricky about that is that when we start talking about these informational pools, then some people would prefer that we have a, a previous means of demarcating the relevant population in which that information flows. So even though I've said, you know, we're, we've moved away from these more, these older ethnic categories or linguistic based categories to ones based more on um, distinct characters of information, when we look at work, um, say, by Pete Richardson or others interested in cultural group selection, often what they do is say, well, cultural groups are defined in terms of, or they're distinguished by some kind of ethnic identity, even if what makes them a distinct cultural group is the particular bits of information that tend to float in that ethnic population. So there's a range of options. Um, and a range of different ontologies, both for cultural groups and for cultures themselves, that creates this real menu of possibilities for um, empirical researchers and, and policymakers in contemporary society. And that is, again, as I've said, both something that's really uh, empirically fruitful, it leads to all this really interesting work, but something that we might worry has all of these worrisome policy or ethical implications, especially since we're talking about sometimes real um, contemporary human populations. Mm -hmm. And what is it that you call demographic cultures? Mm. Yeah, so um, this is a, a sort of term of art that I, I came, came up with to try and capture the fact that a lot of social psychologists in particular like to talk about distinct cultures when explaining, um, you know, variation in individualism or collectivism, right? The fact that some either nations or ethnic populations, you know, seem to be more tightly knit than others, whereas, you know, Western nations or ethnicities tend to be much more individualistic. And demographic cultures is uh, a term I use just to pick out this way in which these psychologists use cultures as this sort of comparative notion, right? We can just identify these distinct populations and, and compare them like any other sort of demographic, like sex, gender, um, socioeconomic status, something like that. And what I've actually tried to do um, in some of this work is say, this is a legitimate empirical notion um, mm -hmm. and to defend it against um, I think a number of critics who have been critical of any sort of use of culture in empirical research because they see it as um, problematically essentialist or having really troublesome metaphysical and empirical assumptions. And I've just tried to say, no, it's, it's like any sort of other demographic. These things can be defined in a lot of different ways, but it's not um, it, a bankrupt empirical notion. It's a really fruitful one. Mm -hmm. So, because you wrote on this topic, I would like to ask you a little bit about 
the origins of hierarchy and inequality. So there are different accounts out there. For example, I have on the show Dr. Kim Sterolny, and we talked a little bit about that. There are others like David Grabers and David Wengros. Uh, what do you think, uh, particularly between those two accounts, what do you think is the best and why? Wow. I mean, so it's a really exciting question in part. So David Graeber, David Wengrow wrote this exciting book, The Dawn of Everything, mm -hmm. where they, they combine a huge wide range of different sources to try and combat what they see as a particularly pernicious account of um, the origins of inequality and fairness. Yeah. And in fact, that that there's this story about the origins of inequality and fairness that they think of as, as itself promulgating a, a sort of mistaken idea about human freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's Kim Storelli's account, which is this deeply researched ecological account of how humans and human cultural capacities and the particular ecological pressures likely led to the emergence of various sorts of things around like private property norms and uh, this this notion of you know sort of elites um, ending up accumulating wealth to create coalitions creating this kind of in unequal society um, I I respect all of these scholars work um, I think David Graeber and David Wengrow have made this incredibly evocative and exciting account. Um, I will say one of the things I find much more interesting and compelling in, say, Kim Storelny's work is the way in which his account, which, as I said, not only is a story of human cognitive evolution and human cultural evolution, but that kind of story embedded into um, a rich ecological story. Um, one of the things I really admire about that is the way in which that story shows how there can be these pretty robust and strong pressures for populations to act in various sorts of ways um, that sets up these conditions for inequality. Right? So it creates this sort of structural account at both group levels and individual levels that explains how and why we might have come to a situation um, like the one we're in today, where there's this, there's a great deal of inequality, there's these sort of superfluous elites who don't really add anything to society, but nonetheless capture a huge amount of resources. So I really like Kim's account. It's also important to say, however, that Kim's work um, especially in his, his recent book, ends almost precisely at the point that David Wengrow, David Graeber start their account, right? So um, Kim ends his book at about the beginning of the Pleistocene-Holocene boundary and the formation of these proto-states. Mm -hmm. And that's almost precisely the point at which the two Davids start their account. So in some sense, there's, there's not overlap in the empirical details of their two accounts, but I will say I find uh, Kim's account, as I said, which sets up this sort of rich structural account of incentives um, 
grounded in human cognition and in ecology to be really powerful. Mm -hmm. So now I would like to ask you about your thoughts on the extended evolutionary synthesis. It's been out there. Uh, I'm not exactly, uh, I, I'm not uh, sure about exactly how long, but probably at least 10, 15 years already. Uh, and just to mention people I have on the show who support it, people like David Sloan Wilson and Massimo Pigliucci, for example. Uh, and because you come from a camp of cultural evolution, um, do you think that we need an extended evolutionary synthesis or the modern evolutionary synthesis that is dominant in the evolutionary sciences since almost a century is enough? Well, um, so I should probably say some provisos first off, which was that I was on a project that was part of this, this broader inquiry, and it was sort of led by Kevin Leyland, who is one of these architects of the mm -hmm. extended evolutionary synthesis. That being said, I think I've been reasonably critical of this idea that the extended evolutionary synthesis um, should lead us to radically overhaul our understanding of evolution. Um, so maybe I'll just back up and say a little bit about what the stakes of the debate might be or have originally been presented as. So there was, the, there was an early conference at, uh, I think it was at the Conrad Lawrence Institute, which started to push for this idea that contemporary evolution was uh, ignoring important sources of, of empirical data and concepts in work like evolutionary developmental biology, um, maybe even in uh, paleobiology or paleontology. And so they were, they were motivating this idea that we needed to change or update the modern synthesis uh, to accommodate this, this work. And so this led to, uh, as you said, Massimo Pigliucci um, co-edited this, um, this edited volume in 2010, sort of pushing forward the, for this. At the same time, there's this rich body of work coming from people like Kevin Leyland and his collaborators, suggesting that um, the modern synthesis has, has not fully incorporated work on niche construction in the ways in which organisms co-construct their environment. Mm -hmm. um, and combining all of these different ideas, um, Kevin and a number of other co-authors, including Kim Storelny, argued for this extended evolutionary synthesis with the idea being there needed to be some kind of theoretical change in evolutionary biology that allowed for these kinds of phenomena to basically play an important theoretical role right so it was it was a kind of shift in our perspective on on evolution that increased the visibility of these kinds of resources around say, uh, Evo Devo, Devo Eco, and these sort of niche construction sorts of things. Um, and one of the immediate responses from people who work in, I'd say sort of mainstream evolutionary theory was that, you know, we accommodate this kind of work, we welcome it and we celebrate it. So why should we 
have this kind of attitude towards this work, which is that should cause us to rethink our, our central theories. Mm -hmm. um, and my own work on this area has really interrogated this one argument from the people in, in support of the extended evolutionary synthesis. So I just said that people like Kevin Leyland were interested in niche construction, the way that organisms co-create environments. And they had this particular concept they call reciprocal causation, which is about this kind of reciprocal co-creation between organisms and environments. And maybe even within an organism, there's this sort of reciprocal relationship between cells or organs or other kinds of, of, of bodily systems. Um, and Kevin and his collaborators argued in some of these publications that you know reciprocal causation is a sort of really radical notion. And it's this idea, along with maybe one or two others, that really pushes forward this extended evolutionary synthesis. Mm -hmm. And I've been quite skeptical of that, um, that argument saying, look, reciprocal causation is a pretty mundane element of a lot of work in evolutionary biology. And if we think that that's the best case for the extended evolutionary synthesis, then we really shouldn't think that we need to change evolutionary theory. Um, if anything, what we really need to do is, you know, just create space for people like Kevin and, and the rich body of work coming out of his group at St. Andrews and maybe uh, other collaborators, say Tobias Uller at Lund, to create these really interesting and powerful new lines of inquiry that, that develop these, these notions of organismic co-construction in interesting ways. But it doesn't really force us to, to change any of our overarching evolutionary theories. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, one last question then, uh, what is uniqueness in the life sciences mm -hmm. and what sort of epistemic implications does it have? Right. Well, this kind of loops back to this, this question about novelties, right? Which are these paradigmatic cases of uniqueness, um, particularly in evolutionary biology. Um, but as I think maybe astute listeners will have picked up on when I was talking about these things, you know, they open up evolutionary exploration spaces. That's not a particularly concrete articulation of what uniqueness is. Um, and so uh, me and uh, my co-author, Adrian Curry, we, we tried to construct a, a set of criteria for understanding when something can count as unique, um, particularly in the case of evolutionary phenomena, but um, hopefully keeping open uh, the applicability of these tools to the life sciences more generally. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to argue against was this idea that if something is unique, then we can't actually explain it. Now that might sound sort of crazy, but on some accounts of explanation, what one has to do is situate a particular instance in a broader generalization, right? And that's how you explain it. So for instance, when we explain phenomena in physics, right, we plug in our different starting conditions into our physical equations. And it's those generalizations about relationships between physical quantities or, or qualities that 
you know, explains how the system develops. In the same way, some people have said, well, you can't explain unique events and we can't um, accommodate them if that is our standard of explanation because unique events are unique. And so there's not going to be any generalization which you can plug the parameters into. And so part of what Adrian and I tried to argue is that we can understand unique events, we can explain them, even if they are unique by situating different elements of them into um, maybe sort of middle range explanations and crafting a story of, uh, I think what we called path dependent cascades mm -hmm. that explain how particular trajectories might be unique, but we can still explain them by appealing to these overlapping explanations that might be models or generalizations, ecological laws or something like that. Um, so the, the, the punchline was basically that unique events are these sort of path dependent cascades of a bunch of different causes creating this sort of distinctive trajectory. But at the same time, they don't carry these epistemic implications that those unique kinds of path dependent cascades are unexplainable. Um, we think scientists do explain unique events and they do so all the time. And we, we just needed to recognize that. Mm -hmm. Great. So, Dr. Buskell, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the Internet? Oh, sure. Um, I'll say uh, I upload lots of my preprints to the, the PhilSci archive. I encourage people to use that resource all the time, um, a great open access resource. Um, my own website is uh, andrewbuskell.com, pretty easy to remember. Um, I am on Twitter, at Andrew Buskell, though I have to say I'm, I'm not particularly good at being on Twitter. Um, and uh, otherwise, um, I will be publishing in the next couple, couple months. Uh, I have recently revised the entry on cultural evolution with uh, Professor Tim Lewins, and so that will be on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, mm -hmm. if people want to check that out. Um, and maybe I'll leave it at there. Okay, so I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of this interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, likewise, Ricardo. Thank you very much. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to help keep the channel sustainable, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal. You have all of the links there in the description box. Even just $1 would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. Finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perger Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Anna Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenia, John Collers, 
Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Burger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Jugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermity Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roff, Yannick Punter, Adan Rosmani, Charlotte Gliz, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Alman, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dan, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morton Eichland, and Dr. Bird. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanek, Dam Curtis Dixon, John Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardis France, and Thomas Trumbull. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.